And it's a glorious privilege to be one of the elders here, to be a teacher. And so Dylan was, I, I had to stay late Friday and yesterday till 9 o'clock trying to get everything done. And Dylan was in my study getting some of his books. Actually, they're not his books yet. It's an already not yet. They're already his, but not yet. I haven't, I haven't passed away and gone to heaven yet. But he was... And I was sitting there, and I looked at Dylan, and I said, Dylan, if I ever lose a sense of the glorious privilege of ministry and having people out there that pray for me and care for me, would you hit me in the head with a two-by-four and bring some sense to me? And Dylan just looked at me because you want hit right now? <laughs> I said, no, it's kind of in David's. In the Psalms, you know, let a righteous man smite me. So I just want to express my thanksgiving to the Lord for not only calling me out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his own dear son, but looking out, you're, you're my true family. Runs, runs thicker than blood. And... Um, just thank you for the privilege of, of uh, giving me a salary so I can study and pray and teach the Scriptures. Lord God in heaven above, we look to you this morning. It's your word. It's your book. It's your revelation from heaven. We need, we need help. We need help from the Spirit of God to work in our hearts and in our lives to not only give us a right understanding of Scripture, but more importantly, to give us a desire to obey the Word of God, that we would be hearers and doers, doers with the right motives, the right intent, the right, the right thoughts, the right desires. You know the heart of everybody present this morning you know those who may be struggling with sin. You know those who have truly come to faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You know those who are experiencing sorrows and sadness. Some are rejoicing. And we know not everyone here has come to faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We know we have families that have brought young children into this world and they don't come in. with a right relationship with you, but with hearts that need to be taught the gospel, prayed for, and then for you to do that, only the work that you can do, bring them to a saving knowledge of yourself, and then we pray that they would grow in truth and grace. So Lord, work in each heart, in each life, as only you can see fit. And then Lord, help me to remember, not everything needs to be said by me this morning. Help me to be, be careful and use the time wisely. Bring the things back to my memory that I ought to, ought to say. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. We're making progress through the Gospel of Matthew. We are, have now come to chapter 10. This is the second major discourse. And discourse, I mean, it's a major block of teaching. So you can, I, I find that's a helpful way. I think Matthew probably organized that way, uh, his, his gospel. I used to have a low view, I think, of Matthew because he was a tax collector. My, my estimation has totally changed. Uh, he had a really bright mind, and the way he has written and organized this, and his knowledge of Scripture. When you go through Matthew, the man's knowledge of uh, Scripture, he may have been covetous, but if there's a person who is not covetous upon planet Earth when you're born, then you're probably self-deceived. Um, we all come in uh, the world that way, and God in his grace needs to change us. So we're going... Uh, Introduction, 
you will have uh, a narrative section taking the story forward about how Jesus, uh, the one who will save his people from their sins, Emmanuel, God with us. We're going to go to the very end. Now, all authority has been given to me, and he is with us to the end of the age. That's, that's Emmanuel. So we're going from there. So the narrative, the storyline, kind of walks us through the history of what takes place. And Matthew does that. But he punctuates that narrative with major blocks of teaching. And there are five major blocks of teaching. And we are in the second one, the second block of teaching in Matthew chapter 10. And I call it the divine blueprint for workers in the harvest field. And we are in part two. Now I remind myself that when we are active in whatever, what, whatever you are called to do, whether you're a mom in the home, you're, you're a dad who works, you're a young person, and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, we're all called to be his disciples. We're all called to serve him, to obey him. And it, and it always starts this way. When I say bring the book, you need to be a person of the book. You need to read it. You need to think about it. You need to keep building up, saturating Scripture in your mind. When Jesus chose the twelve, before he sent them out, he did two things. He called his disciples, Mark chapter 3, those whom he himself wanted, and he came to them, and out of those disciples he appointed twelve for two purposes, that they might be with him, with him. Direct, immediate, personal time and training with him. And then that he might send them out. So we have progressed in the narrative. We have seen that Jesus has had his disciples with him. They've watched him. They've watched him pray. That's what really brought about our Lord's prayer. They're watching him to pray, and they say, would you teach us to pray like that? Our Father who is in heaven, he taught us to pray. May your name be treated as holy. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. As that will is done in heaven, may it be done upon earth. So we never want to lose the importance of your own personal time private time in the book and in word and in prayer. I can't tell you how long to spend each day, but we don't have Jesus with us physically. We have him spiritually present. We have the Spirit of God, and as you spend time in the Word of God and in prayer and looking to him, regardless of your age, he will answer and bring about greater progressive sanctification. And then he sends us out, all of us. But we're looking at the original sending out, and this discourse, this section in chapter 10, I divide it simply on um, others treat it differently, but I, I treat it uh, basically where they're going and the geography and to whom they're going, and you can divide this that way. So in chapter 10, verse 5, Jesus sent them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That is governed 5 through 15. Then in 16 and following, now they're going to go to the Gentiles. And they're going to stand before others. So the first section is instruction for 12 on a short-term tour. And there are some very specific, explicit instructions for them that are not applicable to us. There are truths in that first section, but that there's a change of agenda. Look, acquire no gold or silver, no bag for your journey, 
Only two tunics, no sandals, staff, etc. Don't take any money with you. Just go out there. And I take it that one probably lasted about three weeks. When we come down to the upper room discourse, Judas is about to go out to the betrayal. And we have the institution of the last Passover the first Lord's Supper and the prediction of Peter's temporary but not a permanent lapse of faith. Jesus reminds them of what he says right here in verses 5 through 15. When I sent you out without money back, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? And they said nothing. Nothing. It's a reminder that God, we obey God, do what he says, he'll take care of us. And he said to them, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it, likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. So from this point of time, certainly beyond Golgotha, the crucifixion and resurrection, they will need to take the normal kind of provisions for a journey, including a sword. Now that implies defense. I take it against thugs and robbers. Some have the mindset and think that sounds a little unspiritual to have a sword uh, against uh, um, criminals. Um, but I, I see that truth still remains the same. And he will supply all we need. So then this first section ends with the realization that we'll, there will be a rejection of the message. Look at it in verses 14 and 15. If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet. It's a symbolic act of judgment when you leave that house or town. And what, what could be more awesome terrifying to say, for you that have the truth right in front of you in the progress of revelation, to reject these messengers of mine, it's going to be more terrible for you than it will be for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment. So then we come to this next section, which is instructions for the long-range mission and I'm only going to try and go down through about verse 25 this morning, but just overviewing the whole section. There's going to be, on the first section, there was just, uh, there's lack of reception of the messengers and the message, but the heat's going to get turned up in this section. It's going to get turned up. The persecution, the hostility, the hatred, is going to be magnified, and we're going to read about persecution for God's servants, and then we're going to read, and, and, and if somebody's going to kill me, that gets my adrenaline going, and it's easy to become afraid, and so we're going to have instructions to trust in God, do not fear. As a matter of fact, some are going to die, and God says, but fear the one who is able to cast both body and soul, into Gehenna. And then there's the, going to be the priority of God during persecution at all times. And then it's going to end on vindication by God. There's a great encouragement that actually God knows and sees and hears all things, and he's going to honor obedience and love and service to him. So that's kind of an overview on this section. So I want to talk, first of all, the, the, height, the, the emphasis here in 16 through 25 by looking at the key words. In the word for betray, to hand over, it's used in different things, in different ways sometimes. Um, Paul said, I handed over to you uh, the tradition, the teaching that I received. But here, in this context, in, in here, the handing over is a betrayal. 
It's handing you over to unjust decisions that are going to be made before courts, um, and there's going to be uh, persecution. We saw it in 10.4, in the word Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. That, that's the same word. Then we see it in 17. They will deliver you, hand you over to courts. They're going to flog you in their synagogues. Remember, you can have 40 lashes, but usually they gave 39 because they didn't want to make sure that they didn't violate giving too many. And then in verse 19, when they deliver you, that's the same one. It's a hostility. They're going to hand you over. And don't be anxious about what you're going to say. Then we find it in verse 20 again. Um, Brother will hand over brother to death, and the father is child. Children will rise up against parents. So we see that here, this is a whole total different level than on that first brief tour of the towns of Israel. And so this is going to go beyond what they experience, and we're going to find it. As a matter of fact, we don't find the kind of persecution that's described here until we come to after Golgotha. We find no record in the synoptics that the uh, twelve were, were beaten Oh, we find out later on that they were. As a matter of fact, we find out later on that most of them were martyred. As a matter of fact, the only one that my understanding that died a natural death of the apostles is, is the apostle John later on. So there's going to be... And then look at the word for hatred down in 10.22. You will be hated by all. Now, this is all in a restrictive sense. Sometimes the word all is comprehensive, and sometimes all you, uh, has to be understood in its, in its context. All for my name's sake, but the one who dures to the end will be saved. Um, persecution. This is the strongest word, and occurs in verse 23. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Now that particular verb... It's used in a positive sense with great zeal. And we're to pursue after righteousness. But here, some are going to pursue after you with great zeal. They're going to make life difficult for you, and you're going to be hated by all. And then there's flight, and eventually some are going to experience death. And so the instruction given for that in verse 28. So the, this section, as, as we turn to here and as, as we think through it, these principles are still true. I just read through, some of you get the voice of the martyrs, and I just read through this, this, this section, and it's highlighted in what's going on in Africa. Um, they beheaded her husband. They burned their their villages. They tried to get them to renounce uh, uh, Christ with uh, uh, extremists. And just seeing how God sustains them in, in the midst of that. So there, there is still great persecution today. I don't know to what extent, but the heat is getting turned up in our own country, for sure. I mean, uh, so... Now, with the warnings that are come, I just want to say, why all these warnings? Look at the warning here. The first thing that this starts, Behold, pay attention, <clears throat> I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent of doves. Beware, beware, watch out. So why all these warnings that persecution, hatred is going to come? So I'm just going to do it from the Gospel of John because there he's in the upper room discourse. And why is he telling them those things? 1429, I have told you before it comes, so when it does come to pass, you may believe. In other words, you're recognizing the sovereign of God, the sovereign God of heaven above. He hasn't abandoned his throne 
when we experience persecution. He's there. And so we will know that even those things that are hard and harsh upon us, God is in control. 16.4, these things I've told you, that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. 16.20, amen, amen, that he puts his amens up front. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. 16.33, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. You're not going to have it in the world. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And then, as we'll see in here, he also tells them, you're going to have difficulties, but you're not going to have any difficulty that I am not there to sustain you and help you to be faithful. The helper, the paraclete, the advocate will come. So, there's help, the spirit of your father. There's truth about the master and discipleship relationship. And there's three reasons not to fear. So we're going to turn to this section then, the preparation for persecution. And the first word is for a preparation is we look, behold, behold this principle. I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be wise as serpents and innocent of doves. Reflect with me on the privilege of being of one of God's sheep. Matthew 9:36 When he saw the crowds Jesus had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. But if you know Christ, if you know God, you are not shepherdless. You have the good shepherd. Jesus said it this way, I'm the good shepherd. <coughs> the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not a shepherd. He doesn't own the sheep. He sees the wolf coming. And he leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. And he flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one, the strongest emphasis for it's not going to happen. No one will ever, never it's going to happen, snatch them out of my hand. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. And then I look at this basic principle. The good shepherd is sending out his sheep into the midst of wolves? That's exactly what it says. He is not throwing them to the wolves. He is sending them out in the midst of wolves, and he is warning them that that is what they're going among. So follow this principle. Wise as serpents, innocent as doves. You have personal responsibility and accountability. You have to, you have to engage. You have to... Think wisely like a serpent, but you have to be innocent as doves. So being wise as serpent, this should, this should take our minds back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Well, if he's part of the beast of the field, then this is one of God's created beings. The rest of Scripture makes clear. I take it that uh, Satan was using this. It, it was a real snake. And it says the serpent was more, more crunt, cunning. 
He, he's crafty. He's clever. Derek Kidner on that Hebrew word says it means malevolent brilliance. Rank right at the top here, Satan. He's a brilliant being, but all his brilliance is turned to evil. He hates God. He hates God's people. And so what happens in Genesis chapter 3? He comes to them, and he offers a better plan than God has. And God's not as good as you think he is. And if you just do what I tell you to do, you're going to be like God. And so after he engages Eve in a dialogue, and by the way, it says Adam was right there with her. He did not protect his wife. And so Satan's gone at that point. And they follow the advice and they sin. Now if he's able to deceive a couple that were sinless, I don't say they were perfect, they were innocent. What's that say about the rest of us now? So we're supposed to be wise as serpents. 2 Corinthians 11.3, I'm afraid, says Paul, that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. One of, one of his plans to get us off course and sinning against God is when somebody does something against us and we don't like it, we don't forgive them. Well, that's part of Satan's plan. He says, Indeed, I have forgiven anything. I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us. We're not ignorant of his devices. That word for devices means naima. He, ha he has plans. Now, we don't, we don't really, some of you, you, you've told me, you just pick them up and fling them away. Um, good snakes. Some of you believe in good snakes. Um, and, you know, the kind that eat rats and mice and all that kind of stuff. And I'm not going to pull out a name, but one of them said you, did, you just picked it up by the tail and put it in a bucket and was going to be kind to it and carry it off, but it, it bit him on the hand. I go... Well, that's not what we do when I look out on the pond and I see these things coming across. I go out and try and introduce them to Mr. 12-Gauge. And they're wise. They see me coming. They don't come up and right to the shore and stick out their tongue and go, ah, come on, try and shoot me. You can't see. You're a preacher. I go, no, they see me with that 12-Gauge. They're underwater. I have to go around. Usually I have mana spotted me. No, you missed him. He came up over there. And, and eventually, um, they're proverbial for wisdom. We're to engage our minds. We're to think very wisely, very carefully about how to conduct ourselves in the midst of wolves. But at the same time, we're to be innocent. We're to be harmless, like doves. William Hendrickson generalizes the principle. I found it helpful. He says this, This involves insight into the nature of one's surroundings, both personal and material, circumspection, sanctified common sense, wisdom, to do the right thing at the right time in the right manner, a serious attempt always to discover the best means to achieve the highest goal, an earnest and honest search to such questions as how will this word or this action of mine look in the end? How will it affect my own future, that of my neighbor, God's glory? Is this the best way to handle the problem or is there a better way? And sometimes, you know, zip the lip. It's just, hey, I'm not going to give you an answer. I've already answered you. And you keep coming back the same way, and you're hostile. So we need, we need wisdom. It doesn't spell out all the ways. And sometimes things come across my path, and I, I look at this, and I say, Lord, not only them, but you're sending us out in the sh 
as sheep in the midst of wolves. It's still true today. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Lord, I'm facing this difficulty. Would you, would you give me great wisdom from heaven? And yet at the same time, help me to not to transgress and to sin and to be harmless. And I take that as particularly reflected when we're thinking about the wolves. Beware, take heed of men. They're going to deliver you over to courts. They're going to flog you in their synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. And you're going to be bear witness before them and the Gentiles. That's why this second half isn't just to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, it's, it's one discourse. It's one block of teaching. It's given upon one occasion. And you can see that clearly when you go to 10.5. These 12, Jesus sent out instructing them. And then you come down to the end of it in 11.1 when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples. So it's one block of teaching, and they get it all at one time, but the first half of it particularly applies to going to the lost sheep of house of Israel. And now the rest of this goes beyond that, particularly I take it post-resurrection, we see it fleshed out in the book of Acts, and it is true for us as well. And so sometimes I ask, how am I going to get help by applying this principle by looking at the book of Acts? So Paul says to the Ephesian elders, be caref be Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, Care for the church of God. He bought it with his own blood. Doesn't belong to you. But I know after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men, speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. So one of the way that you know fierce wolves, they got bad doctrine. They got false teaching. They try and lead you astray. And if you follow error and out of harmony with what God has to say, then you're going to suffer consequences in your life. But we also were warned in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come to you in what kind of clothing? Sheep's clothing. They try and act like sheep. But inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. Well, how are you going to know them? by their fruits, their conduct. So we're looking at them by what they teach, what they do. 2 Timothy 4.14, Paul was not naive. He said, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. Watch out for that guy. The Lord will repay him according to his works. There are men like Hymenaeus and Philetus. They have swerved from the truth. Their talk is going to spread like gangrene. Don't get infected with that. And then 2 Corinthians 13, 7. Now I pray to God that you do no evil, that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable, even though some think that we are disqualified. So there's punishment in the synagogues that included excruciating Flogging, appearance before Gentile courts. But look at the promise that's given in the middle of this. When they, there's that technical word, hand you over, betray you, don't be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. So two things, how and what. Now, after I was uh, converted, I think it was my sophomore year, I went out on an evangelistic project to uh, Ocean City, New Jersey. We had classes in the evening. And, it, and then you just go out on the boardwalk and you talk to people about Jesus. Uh, and then we needed a local church to go to. 
So there was, a, there was a large church there. So I had a little Volkswagen. I had one of the few people that actually had driven a car out there. So um, we actually, I know you go, you really were kind of strange. I got 15 people in a Volkswagen. So when you show up at a church and all these people come out, they're, they're kind of looking at you like, wow. And it was a small church. We found it out, outside uh, in the country. And they had a very strange practice. So we come in. We found out it was a believing church. And so whoever's going to speak, he would come in and he'd sit down in the front. But he doesn't do anything. And who knows how long you may sit there. It's just complete silence. And so whenever he senses that God is going to give him a message, then he'll get up and speak. So everybody prays for him, that God, and they would use this text. Um, it'll be given to you in that hour. You don't need to study beforehand. Just come in, have all the people pray for you, and then when God... <laughs> I'm going... Now, I wasn't all that biblically literate at that time, but I thought, that doesn't make any sense. So let me tell you something. If you, if you have the gift of teaching then you study. You study. You don't get up with an empty head, and this is not uh, a blanket promise and assurance for teachers and preachers who fail to prepare. This is 1 Timothy 4.15. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your others. Make every effort to present yourself before God as a proven worker who doesn't need to be ashamed and one that I keep on my wall in there. If you, by putting these things before the brethren and then by training yourself in the words of faith and of good doctrine, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. But what this promises is when they drag you before the courts, and now you're anxious, and you haven't had a time to prepare exactly for your defense, then God is going to enable you to speak. Now, this, this is different. Think about demonic possession. We looked at the Gadarene demoniac. So here they were, naked, wild out there, running around and um, attacking people, not in their right mind. Then Jesus comes along. Remember, the, the, just a glimpse, just a small glimpse of what's going on in the unseen world. So he cast out the demon, legion, there were so many, and they go into pigs and they rush down and a herd of about 2,000 perish. And here's the guys now sitting clothed and in their right mind. So it's not the same as that. You are speaking, but the Spirit of God is speaking through you. It, it's not some kind of trance comes over you. God enables you through His Spirit to speak what He wants you to speak. It's not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Let me give you a couple examples from the book of Acts. Here's, here's Peter and John. When they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or what, what means did you do this? And Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, but that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, that's how we're doing it. And there is salvation and no one else, and no other name given under heaven whereby men can be saved. So that's where it says you're going to bear witness before them. So God is using the difficulties, the persecution, you're, you're dragged before them, 
and you testify on his behalf. Acts 5.27, when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them. Hey, we told you not to teach or preach in his name. And how important is this principle? We must obey God rather than men. But I think the one that is most clear is Acts chapter 6 with Stephen. Remember his great sermon? And he stood up full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue, they came, they disputed with him. Here it is, 610. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Think about Paul later on on trial and the wisdom that he had. So he's before Pharisees, Sadducees, and there, and he says, um, great wisdom was given to him. He says, men and brethren, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I'm being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and the heat was turned off of Paul, and he had great wisdom. I see that's part of the principle. I had to defend it before all the faculty and, and doctoral students, and you have to select a paper, and you do it. And in my naivete, I did it on fasting. But not all the faculty agreed on what I was presenting. And you, you have two respondents, and their grade is to evaluate you and your, your response. And I, I'm kind of sitting there, oh, I can't wait till this one's over. And all of a sudden, the faculty got into discussion about to think, and the heat was off me. And I thought, whoa, I hope they discuss this for the rest of this hour. Um, they, they let me pass. Um, but here, Paul was using great wisdom. He's applying this, this principle. And then, worst of all, is family. Family. Family is the bedrock of society. It is the bedrock in Scripture. It begins there. And so to have what Jesus is saying, brother will hand over brother to death, the father is child, the children will rise up again parents and have them put to death. You, you just look in church history and you see how that has played out and is still being played out. Um, some of the folks who minister in Israel today with uh, the gospel there in Jerusalem, um, Orthodox uh, um, Jewish folks, if, if you convert to Christianity, they'll, they'll write you off. They'll, they'll write you off, Orthodox folks still today. Now, maybe through that and your testimony and the work of the grace of God, they may be converted true. Remember, I talked about the the gentleman. Help me, um, Dylan. Um, yeah, Dr. Fruchtenbaum, and he was he was disowned by his family for converting to Christianity. And it's still true today, even here in our wonderful West, that is supposedly so um, embracing of all truth and being kind to all people, except for Christianity. Except for Christianity. So there's, there's the truth. And then when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now, I was... have more notes on this one than any other one. Don Carson, uh, one I, I very appreciate uh, his ministry, says this is perhaps one of the most difficult uh, passages in the entirety of Scripture. 
I have uh, five different views set before me in my notes here with the pros and cons of, of each one. And on, on the surface, some say this. Um, well, liberals say it never happened. Jesus was wrong anyway. So I, I, I hope nobody here is going to embrace that particular view. But the one that says you, you, uh, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So it's looking at the original disciples going through all the towns of Israel, and he's going to come before they're finished. So some take that just as a reference to that initial trip that they're on, the, the journey, and Jesus is going to come to them. Well, how does that take place? Well, some would say uh, he comes um, kind of like a follow-up. Um, so... He catches up with them. He says, get a move on, because they will not have finished their task before he catches up with them. Um, and they would compare Luke 10, 1. That's a different passage. Um, this, this perseverance and suffering here seems to point to a clear post-Pentecost setting. Some take it to refer to A.D. 70, when, and Jesus comes in judgment and... Uh, destruction. Uh, some of the reformers uh, take uh, uh, coming in judgment against the Jews there, the sack of Jerusalem. Um, I, I take it to refer, and, and one of the reasons I do that, I take it to refer to the second advent, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And one of the reasons for that is if you look at the Son of Man when he comes and just flesh that out, particularly in, in uh, Matthew, uh, Matthew 24, 30, um, that's the second advent. Matthew 24, 40, be ready, the Son of Man is coming at a time you don't expect. 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with him. So it seems to me that the coming here is a return to earth the verse anticipates an ongoing mission to Israel until the second coming of Christ, and it anticipates the mission of the church throughout the period of the first and second advents uh, and this outreach to all nations. And finally, I'm going to stop with verse 24 and 25, and how is this an encouragement? If I think about what our Lord suffered and what he endured, I'm always getting treated better than I deserve because I know what I deserve. I deserve judgment. I deserve condemnation. I deserve to be separated. If, if I want fairness, that, that's fairness for me spiritually. I need to be separated from him forever, but God in grace and mercy, if you're a believer, he took your place. He bore your penalty. He suffered for you upon the cross, and he not only took your place, but then he imparts to us perfect righteousness, a right standing before him forever, and we receive that through faith. So, for disciple teacher, if they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? If we're identified with him, then don't be surprised if they mistreated him, they're going to mistreat, mistreat us. Someone said to me one time, why do you do PowerPoints? You never keep up with them. So that was just keeping up, catching up here at, at the end. But let me bring uh, the conclusion down here. When we come to the end, there is great encouragement. Whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. 
Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he's a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Sometimes through persecutions, through difficulties, through trials, through sufferings, I begin to lose my focus on that it is a privilege, an honor to suffer for the cause of Christ. That's the last of the Beatitudes. When men persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely and revile you, rejoice, be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. So it takes me back again to Mark 3, 13 and 15. Before we go out into the world, before I leave for the day, I get up early in the morning and I'm reminded he appointed them to be with him. And to send them out. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. They recognized that those men had been with Jesus. And if I'm not spending time with him personally, I can't tell you how much time to spend. You need to spend some time each day. Open the book. The greatest failure in evangelical Christianity today is people do not read this book. This is a word from heaven. Read it. Believe it, obey it, keep building in your mind your knowledge of the Word of God and then cry out to God, would you make this book real in my life? Help me to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Give me increase, increasingly purity of heart. The pure in heart will see God. I will see God one day. We, we just had a reminder on, on Thursday and Friday, that's where we're headed we want to get there well. So do I spend time with my Lord, reading the word from heaven, praying to the God of heaven, fellowshipping with the people of heaven, and speaking to others about the key to heaven? You know what the key to heaven is? We just changed all the locks on the exterior doors here and had the guy uh, and his son come over from Midway Lock and all, and so took them several hours to get them all changed, and I'm praying, Lord, help me, help me to speak a wise word to him. So when he's all done, and I said to him, I'd like to ask you one question, one question. He goes, sure, go ahead. I said, do you know what the key is to heaven? You just changed all the keys on the door. He looked me right in the eye, and he said, love the Lord your God with all your soul your heart, your mind, and your strength. I said, if you believe that, you got it. You got it. So the Lord sends us out. He sends us out to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. But as we go out, spend time with him in his book, in prayer. Keep your right relationship with God so that circumstances and difficulties don't make us bitter. They just bring us into greater dependence upon him.